We had a period of warm days here in these mountains of western North Carolina. It was still February, and the days got up to 70 degrees. We have flowers blooming all over, daffodils, crocuses, hyacinths. I have a plum tree that is white with flowers. Then this cold spell comes through. I look up at the mountains around me this morning, and the top half is white, trees covered with rime. I'd never heard of rime growing up in California, but it's pretty common here. A cloud will pass over the mountain in cold weather, and the water vapor rapidly freezes. Everything is covered in hoarfrost. It'll get down to the teens tonight, cold for us in March. That's a warm night for Dawn's family up in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Hello, this is Ernie Johnson, owner of Anashira. It's quieted down for us here. We made it through the Christmas and Valentine's Day selling seasons. Easter doesn't generally mean an explosive sale season for us. You know, I should push a new tradition, replacing the Easter egg hunt with an Easter bar of soap hunt. If you want to have one at your house, contact me, and I'll work out with you some special orders and organizing your hunt. You can make it a party for your adult friends. We left Germany when I was heading home after our trip to West Berlin. Let's go back now as I return to school. One thing that my stay in the hospital interrupted was our schedule to use the short stories in My Name is Aram in teaching my English class at school. We had finished only four or five of them when I broke my leg. Luckily, I had plenty of time to read them and lay out my lesson plans for the next classes. We started with my favorite one of the book called The Pomegranate Trees. I really like the boy Aram. In this story, he spends time with his uncle Melik, who has purchased 680 acres of worthless desert land. Aram says, It's way over to hell and gone at the foot of the Sierra Nevada mountains. His uncle described it in the most poetic Armenian anybody had ever heard. Here in this awful desolation, a garden shall flower. Fountains of cold water shall bubble out of the earth. And all things of beauty shall come into being. Yes, sir, said Aram. They walk through the dry earth, and a horned toad scrambles out at his uncle's feet. What is that animal? That tiny lizard? I don't know for sure. We call them horny toads. Is it poisonous? To eat or if it bites you? Either way. I don't think it's good to eat. I think it's harmless. I've caught many of them. As I first read this, I realize why I liked Aram so much. He started out in this story at 11 years old. I was just 11 when we moved off the ranch into the Fig Garden neighborhood. Aram's uncle's property was a desert. So was the property where our house was until water was brought in. Aram knew about horned toads. So did I. We caught them all the time. My pals and I knew they weren't poisonous. They just looked like they were. 
They were most effective at making girls scream and run. It was guaranteed to make them angry when you threatened to hide one in their bed between the sheets. Now, we had an understanding in this English class. As they spoke no English to me in my existence outside this class, we would speak no German in it. So try to explain what a horned toad is to people who have never seen one before. Well, it's like a toad. What's a toad? Well, it's a reptile like a frog that lives on land. It looks like a dinosaur with spines and horns. It moves slowly. And so on. These creatures live in deserts. The German boys had never seen one before. So Aram holds him for his uncle to see. My uncle looked the horned toad straight in the eye. The horned toad looked my uncle straight in the eye. For fully half a minute, they looked one another straight in the eye. And then the horned toad turned its head aside and looked down at the ground. My uncle sighed with relief. A big one, my uncle said, could probably bite a man to death. They don't grow big, I said. This is as big as they grow. Put that creature down. Let us not be cruel to the innocent creatures of Almighty God. If it is not poison and grows no larger than a mouse and has no memory to speak of, let the timid little thing return to the earth. Be gentle toward these small things which live on the earth with us. His uncle went on to ask Aram, What else lives on this land? Well, there are three or four kind of snakes. Poison or non-poison? Mostly non-poison. The rattlesnake is poison, though. Do you mean to tell me there are rattlesnakes on this land? This is a kind of land rattlesnakes usually live on, Aram said. So we had lengthy discussions in class of how much land there actually was in California, that a man could go out and buy 680 acres just like that. They sensed that I had a liking for young Aram and asked if I had an uncle like Uncle Melick. I told him I did indeed. I had a great uncle named Edward Daybritz and an uncle named Les. They each did crazy things too. They asked if I'd done things like go into the desert and study strange creatures with them. I said absolutely and many other things. I think my classmates saw me a little differently then. I'm going to make a garden of this awful desolation, his uncle said. Yes, sir, I said. I know what my problems are, my uncle said, and I know how to solve them. How? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is hire some Mexicans and put them to work. Doing what? Clearing the land. Then I'm going to have them dig for water. After we get water, I'm going to have them plow the land, and then I'm going to plant so this led to lots of conversation. Questions such as, you have lots of Mexicans in California? Yes, a lot. You can just hire them to work? Yeah, if you've got money, you can hire them. Are they citizens? Mm, some are, some aren't. Are they Gastarbeiter? That's a term, guest worker, used in Germany. A lot of Turks were Gastarbeiter there. Are they legally allowed to work? Well, not really. In those days, it wasn't a problem. We needed a lot of work done, lousy, low-paying, grueling work, and they did it. 
Do these Mexicans work hard? Yeah, they work incredibly hard. And you know, never you never hear a complaint from them. Are they respected and appreciated by you Americans? No, I'm afraid to say that not very often. Are there a lot of Armenians in Fresno? I explained that thousands of Armenians had emigrated to the States after the massacres of the Turks. In 1915, the Turks had slaughtered millions of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. Many of them had settled in and around Fresno. Are they treated like the Mexicans? Are they all poor? No, they're generally very successful economically. They have been mostly assimilated into the communities. We had a good discussion about snakes. Do you have snakes near your house? Yes, we do. My friends and I go out in the fig orchards and catch them. They're excellent to scare girls with. Do you have four kinds of snakes in Fresno? Yeah, more or less. We have snakes such as the king snake and the gopher snake, both common and non-poisonous. We have the coach whip. It's long, thin, and has large eyes. It's fast and prefers fleeing rather than fighting. Its bite is painful but harmless. Sometimes it sticks its head up out of the grass to look around. You can see it. I said we didn't have many rattlesnakes around Fresno anymore, but that there were plenty in the foothills and in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Have you ever seen one near you? Oh, for sure. I told them the story of that rattlesnake coiled up next to me that morning on the backpacking trip with my dad. That led to a whole lot of questions unrelated to the story of the pomegranates. Hey guys, let's get back to our discussion of this story. So then we get into the part when they discuss what Uncle Melick wanted to plant. Peach trees, apricots, figs, mulberry trees, olive trees, and of course, pomegranate trees, which were the only trees they actually did plant. So, Ernst, what is a pomegranate? Well, it's a tree that bears a fruit that looks like an apple with a hard skin that splits open to reveal clusters of gem-like seeds and so on. The juice extracted from the seeds is red and sour. They looked at me with looks of puzzlement and incomprehension. It helped some when I explained that the fruit had originated in the region extending from modern-day Iran to northern India and had been cultivated since ancient times throughout the Mediterranean region. I had no example of the fruit and no photos of the fruit, its seeds or of the trees. I tried to explain to them how you pulled the fruit apart and dug out the seeds and sucked the juice out. How it was tart but delicious. How you could spit the seeds out afterwards. How no other fruit tasted like the pomegranate. How if you let the juice dribble down on your shirt or pants, you'd never get the red stains out. But I couldn't do it justice. So in the story, Aram and his uncle planted 700 pomegranate trees, a 20-acre orchard. None of the wells done by the Mexicans produced any water of significance. Saroyan writes, Every once in a while there'd be a sudden generous spurt of water containing only a few pebbles. 
and my uncle would be greatly pleased. But the next day it would be muddy again, and there would be only a little trickle. There were blossoms after the fourth year. They were very beautiful, but that was about all, purple and lovely. That year my uncle harvested three small pomegranates. I ate one, he ate one, and we kept the other one up in his office. The following year I was 15. The trees didn't fare very well. They grew a little, but it was hardly noticeable. Quite a few of them withered and died. The following year he harvested about 200 pomegranates. Pretty sad-looking pomegranates. We packed them in nice-looking boxes and my uncle shipped them to a wholesale produce shop in Chicago. We didn't hear from the produce house for a month, so one night my uncle made a long-distance phone call. The produce man told my uncle nobody wanted pomegranates. How much you're asking per box? My uncle shouted. One dollar? That's not enough. I won't take a nickel less than five dollars a box. My uncle shouted. They don't want them at one dollar a box. Why not? They don't know what they are. What shall I do with them? I can't sell them. I don't want them. I see, my uncle whispered. Ship them back. Ship them back. Express collect. The phone call cost my uncle about $17. I could see that my classmates understood what the produce man had said. So the 11 boxes came back. His uncle and he ate most of the pomegranates. The following year, my uncle couldn't make any more payments for the land. He gave the papers back to the man who had sold him this land. So my uncle lost the land and the trees too. About three years later, he and I drove out to the land and walked out to the orchard. The trees were all dead. The soil was heavy again with cactus and desert brush, exactly the way it had been all the years of the world. We didn't say anything because there was such an awful lot to say and no language to say it in. My class talked for a long time about these two souls with their dreams, about how failure didn't seem to ruin them and make them bitter. After this story, my classmates had a better understanding about California and Fresno. You know, I think they understood me better as well. Oh, You know what I haven't shared with you? Food. Food that I ate in Germany. How could I have neglected that? I should start this with something about my German guest mother, whom I called Muti. She was a great cook, and she wanted to cook food that I would enjoy. She needn't have been concerned. I loved everything she cooked. She'd had a tough life growing up. She and her mother and sister lived in Dresden during the war. Muti had been recently married and was nine months pregnant with her first child. Between February 13th and 15th, 1945, heavy bombers of the Royal Air Force and the U.S. Army Air Force dropped 4,000 tons of high-explosive bombs and incendiary devices on that city. The bombing and resulting firestorm destroyed a thousand acres of the Altstadt, the city center. One survivor said, It is not possible to describe. Explosion after explosion. It was beyond belief. More than the 
blackest nightmare. So many people were heavily burnt and injured. It was dark, and all of us tried to leave this cellar with inconceivable panic. Fire everywhere, everywhere fire. And all the time, the hot wind of the firestorm threw people back into the burning houses that they were trying to escape from. An estimated 25,000 people were killed. So Muti was in one of these basement bomb shelters during most of these days. During this time, she gave birth to her first son, Folker. She told me this story one day. Not that she was angry or wanted revenge. She said she wanted me to know some of her story. I don't know how I lived through it. I was alone, giving birth to my first child, separated from everyone I knew. I didn't know how we survived afterwards. We had nothing. I watched her cook, always careful and precise. I watched her crack an egg, and then she wiped out all of the egg white from the shell with a finger. Every egg she did. I didn't understand why she did that until I'd heard her story. After years of deprivation, she was not about to waste anything. Soon after I got there, she asked me what I like to eat for breakfast. I didn't know what to say. I like most everything. Pancakes, waffles, fried eggs. I like everything, I said. Well, what do you normally eat for breakfast before school? Uh, cereal, I guess. What kind of cereal? Uh, cornflakes, mostly. It just came out. I didn't know if they even had cornflakes there. I hadn't seen them anywhere. The next day I get home and Muti and Fati greet me with smiles on their faces. Ernst, we have a surprise for you. A surprise? What for? Well, for you to enjoy. And they show me a large cardboard box. It was a case of large boxes of Kellogg's cornflakes. I don't know how they found it. We know you enjoy this for your breakfasts. I didn't know what to say. Eating those cornflakes did remind me of home. And now when I eat them, they remind me of Germany. Germans have a roll called Brötchen, or little bread. It has a crisp crust, is nearly round. You break it open with your hands, and it is soft white inside. Oh my, it is delicious. You spread it thickly with butter and then jam for breakfast. Or you put a slice of cheese on it and some cold meats or sausage. It was so much better than a bowl of cornflakes. Now our big meals were mittagessen, midday meal or lunch. We'd come home and eat together. I ate rabbit for the first time there. Oh, it was tender. You could cut it with a spoon. And it had a brown, rich gravy. We had potatoes almost daily. It is true that Germans love their potatoes, and I did too. Boiled potatoes? Never cut them with a fork. That's insulting to the cook. Means they weren't cooked enough. Just use your fork. Salt potatoes, fried potatoes, mashed potatoes. We ate schnitzel made with chicken, veal, and pork. Goulash and its cousin, the famous goulash soup, goulash soup, sauerbraten, all excellent in this house. Don't forget the sausages, Wienerwurst, long, thin, boiled, Viennese style, bratwurst, 
fried pork sausage, Blutwurst, blood sausage, Berlin's Currywurst, Bavaria's Weisswurst, white sausage. You'd smear them with the very hot Zenf, German mustard, eat with a Brötchen and a tall glass of beer on the side. It didn't take much to please my stomach. Germany had 1,500 different types of sausages. My biggest culinary treat came at Christmas, roast goose. I'd eaten turkey for Thanksgiving and Christmas all of my life. I'd eaten dove, pheasant, quail, ducks, but never a goose. Muti was in the kitchen for hours preparing this meal. If it's not cooked properly, it will be greasy, she said. She stuffed it with chestnuts, apples, raisins, onions, butter. It was moistened with apple juice and sherry. The side dishes were red cabbage and homemade potato dumplings, a typical German Christmas dinner. Dessert was Stolle. We ate the famous Stolle from Dresden. Like I ate as a child, said Muti. A rich, sweet cake filled with nuts and fruit. We drank Sekt, German sparkling wine. Fatih came out with a large smile and a couple of bottles. This, my family, is not everyday Sekt. This is Winzer Sekt. It's a Mosel Riesling, a single vintage and a single grape. Produced in the traditional method, superior to most French champagnes. So we drank it slowly, savoring every drop. And I told them several times that it was the most outstanding sect I'd ever tasted. So we ate and talked. I had received a tape recording made by my Fresno family, directed at me and my new family. We all listened closely. When it was all over, Fatih said, You know, I've studied English all my life but I didn't understand a third of what they were saying. Is it me, or do you Americans all speak with marbles in your mouths? No, no, it's not you. It's us. We are just lazy with our enunciation, and we speak quickly. We had a great Christmas season, and then Ulrich, Volker, and I went back to school. I had a friend, a girl named Karen, from Southern California, We'd flown over together on that DC-3. She had gone to live in the Netherlands in a town called Busum. I got a letter from her. My family and I would like to invite you to come and visit us and see the authentic Netherlands, she wrote. Sounded good to me, and my guest parents thought it was a good idea. I took the train to Busum, which is about 30 kilometers southeast of Amsterdam. I got there and figured I'd get along okay because German is similar to Dutch. I started speaking German to her family, and the reaction was swift. Stop, please, Ernest. We all speak English. We have no fondness for the Germans, and we don't like their language either. Okay. We took the train one day to Rotterdam, the largest port in Europe. We spent the whole day on a harbor cruise and walking through the city. I found the Dutch to be peaceful and very accepting, other than their feelings toward Germans. 
We were all sitting around after lunch one day, and I said to them, You Dutch people seem so tolerant, this spirit of live and let live. You seem content with your lives. Why is this? Ah, a favorite subject for them. Karen's father said, We don't get hung up on the details. Take our diet, for example. He took a slice of bread, buttered it, put a slice of cheese on it, folded it over. There, he said, a Dutch sandwich. Simple. Her brother said, We don't make excuses. See how it's raining outside? It rains here a lot. See those people on bicycles? They just get on their bikes and ride to their class or meeting or lunch or whatever. Her mother said, You have an expression in the States. Chill out, right? Well, we chill. We don't hassle celebrities here. Our prime minister rides around on a bicycle. He's just like us. We don't have to have it all figured out, and we don't have to take life too seriously. Ernie, do you want another beer? This is outstanding, I thought. I need to come back to the Netherlands. This last week, I read an essay by Saroyan talking about his short story, The Pomegranate Trees. He had written the story in 1935 when he was living in San Francisco. The story was indeed autobiographical. I'd suspected that. His mother's youngest sister's husband, Dikran, had bought 640 acres of barren land, and Saroyan, as a young boy, had helped him plant 20 acres of pomegranate trees. The project failed, the land reverted to its original owners, and the trees were abandoned. Years later, he was driving in the San Joaquin Valley, out past Sanger, amongst the vineyards and orchards. He had his five-year-old son, Aram, with him named after the central character in the book of short stories. He drove to where his uncle's land was, stopped the car. They walked the dry land looking for the trees, but they weren't there anymore. Of course, I wasn't aware of this when I taught that English class so many years ago. I don't know if I'd have taught it any differently if I'd have known it was mostly true. I don't suppose it made a difference. I want to thank our fine sponsor, Anashira, for supporting these podcasts. And Anashira wouldn't exist if we didn't have so many great customers buying our soaps. So if you haven't tried it yet, get on your computer or iPod or iPhone and go to Anashira.com. Order a bar of my handcrafted goat milk soap. You'll be glad you did. Use discount code SPRINGSTORIES15. That's Spring Stories 1-5 for a 15% discount. I received two questions this week from my excellent customer, Marilyn, in South Florida. She wrote, How do they decide at nine years old if someone is college track in Germany? Well, in the German education system, for grades one to four, everybody goes to Grundschule, grammar school. After the fourth grade, they're tested, and their teachers will recommend their pupils to a particular level of school based on such things as academic achievement, self-confidence, and ability to work independently. So a combination of academic skills, recommendation of teacher, and most importantly, parents' wishes. It would be tough to know that at age 9 or 10. 
if I'd been in the German school system at that age, my parents probably would have sent me to the Hauptschule. I'd have learned at a slower pace, done vocational-oriented courses, and I'd be a plumber now. Marilyn's second question is, do you think they still have the church tax? Hard to imagine the state would give tax money to a mosque. Yeah, the state tax is still collected for Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish faiths. Significant amount of money. If you're a single person earning 50,000 euros, you'll pay an average income tax of 20% or 10,000 euros. The church tax is an additional 8 or 9% of the 10,000 or 800 to 900 euros or or 900 to a little over $1,000 U.S. Well, we've made it into the new year in Germany. Next time we'll go down in a deep shaft coal mine and also spend time with one of the most famous veterinarians of northern Germany in my next episode of Stories from Anashira. Stories from Anashira.